0: welcome listeners my name is Mackenzie Moon Ryan and I'm sharing a podcast with two of my students in celebration of the exhibition at the Cornell Fine Arts Museum African Apparel threaded transformations across the 20th century which is on view now and so you should get yourself to the Cornell Fine Arts Museum as quickly as possible so just a little bit about me, and then I'll hand it over to my two students. I teach art history at Rollins College, and I was initially approached by director Anna Heller to curate an exhibition for CFAM five years ago. <laughs> and I was able to take on the project about two and a half years ago, and it really started as a conversation, conversation with Anna about my interest and research expertise on the continent of Africa, what people wear, textiles, clothing items of apparel and then conversations with a local Rollins alumna Norma Canellis Roth who has an astounding collection of just that African apparel and so i started formulating how could this project really turn into something that was bigger than me bigger than my area of expertise and so is We started the project. I recruited two phenomenal undergraduate students, Morgan Snope and Christina Toppin, to work with me to conceptualize the exhibition, uh, select the objects, and really curate, co-curate. So I'll let them introduce themselves, and then we'll talk a little bit more. Oh, I guess it's me. Hi,
1: <laughs> my name is Morgan Snope. Um, I'm from Oviedo, Florida, so that's just 30 minutes down the road. I'm a local person. Um, I go to Rollins College with um, majors in art history and minors in Middle Eastern and North African studies and sexuality, women's and gender studies. Um, and so this project has been really wonderful to sort of explore the intersections of my different um, academic interests and to sort of hone in on what I want to study in my in my graduate um, my graduate studies, which is North African text. In relation to Africa, I've only been to Africa once. I went to Morocco, uh, so North Africa, while I was abroad, um, studying abroad in Paris. Uh, But I love to to travel more uh, across the continent. And my experience with the Cornell Fine Arts Museum, or CFAM, began after my. Freshman year at Rollins, I got involved as a docent, so giving tours at the museum as well as the Alfont Inn, which houses our contemporary art collection. And since then, I was—I've been a curatorial intern as well as a curatorial fellow, the Hicks Fellow at the museum for the past two years. Um, and so we love—we love our little campus museum, and really happy to be involved in it in this greater capacity now through African apparel.
2: Hi, uh, this is Christina. Um, I'm a political science and religious studies double major. Um, and when I say that, the first question I usually get is, how do you get involved in art and art history and <laughs> curating? Um, so I've just, those two majors have always allowed me to explore my interests in just simply exploring how humans behave, how humans interact, why things are the way that they are, and how we can change them. So I, in light of that, I took a art history class with Dr. Ryan my first year at Rollins, and I was utterly fascinated by studying different societies through an artistic lens. So at the end of that semester, Dr. Ryan approached me and mentioned the project um, that she was working on with Morgan and asked me to join. And I was like, as a freshman who, you know, who asks a freshman to do research? Of course, yes. Um, So I joined the project. And since then, I have been allowed to explore my interest in um, exploring human behavior and things through lens of culture and race and politics and religion and just everything that I wanted to initially through such you know, a visually aesthetic-pleasing medium. And I actually got the chance to travel to Africa last summer. Um, I went to Namibia, and that was my first time ever leaving the U.S., and it was such an incredible experience.
0: So this is back to Dr. Ryan, and I we're going to devolve just into conversation now. Um, I am an East African textile expert. That's my area of expertise. I write scholarly articles on it, but in thinking about something that would be transformative for students to be a part of, for the community to engage in, we really broadened the idea of this exhibition out to the entire continent of Africa, spanning North, South, East, and West, and then selecting items of apparel from textiles to clothing to beadwork, jewelry, shoes, even some bags, <laughs> to really show the complexity, the diversity, and the artistry across the continent. It was really important to me as a first and foremost, a professor to make this a teaching experience to collaborate with my students from the beginning. And uh, make no mistake, I owned their summers. <laughs> we did the majority of this work over the course of two summers. And so as Morgan and Christina mentioned, I really recruited them as underclass and as a first year and a sophomore, knowing that this was going to take at least two years, mm-hmm. but I wanted them to celebrate and take part in the, the final flourishing of the exhibition too. They've put a lot of um, hard work into this, a countless hours and I'm so proud of the exhibition as it's come together. Now that we can share it with our our college compatriots and community members, this exhibition really I think communicates positive themes about Africa, uh, a pride in their artistry and also the enormous change in diversity across the continent over the course of the 20th century. But how did we get there? We started with nothing. We started with, (laughs) (laughs) as you do and each new project, we came up with an exhibition concept. We came up with the title and some sub-themes. We really had to dive in, um, and they had to get up to speed really quickly on what existing exhibitions were out there. What did we like? What didn't we like? What did we want to contribute that was new and different? And specifically what made this exhibition special And so those were some of the jumping off points for us to get familiar with and then to create our uh, um, selection for the community here, meeting our viewers wherever they might be. And so as listeners, I'd like you to reflect a little bit upon what you know about Africa. Where are you getting your information about the people of Africa, their artistic traditions? And if you're thinking, wow i never really thought about that. I hear a lot about poverty and disease and unrest. That's not the story we're telling here. We're telling a story about resilience and about artistry and about creativity across the course of the 20th century. And Really, it's the long 20th century. Mm-hmm. We stretch that a little bit with items from the late 19th century even into the early 21st century. So when we came up with the title to try to encompass all of these themes, African Apparel, we really want people to know that these are objects that are worn and loved um, and personal to individuals. And then the threaded transformations across the 20th century. Threaded, of course, we hear a lot in language about we- the interweaving and the interlacing. These are metaphors the we puns. use. The puns. puns. We love exactly. textile puns. <laughs> yeah. And so to bring those out in threaded transformations, because, of course, beads are threaded and uh, textiles are threaded, but things that change. A, a lot of times Africa gets seen as something that doesn't change. It's hermetically sealed. And really things have changed an enormous deal across the 20th 20th century, not just um, outside of Africa, but within. And so uh, I hope that the uh, exhibition title sort of whets people's appetite for what they're going to see in the gallery. But I think as listeners, you just have to come experience it for yourself and let your eyes feast on all of the objects that we have on view. Yeah.
2: Um, and we, uh, just to reiterate, Uh, separated items into three main thematic categories, so global interactions, gender realities, and generational conflict and continuities, just to harness that message that uh, Dr. Ryan had just elucidated. Um, And one of the items that really fascinated me within the theme of global interactions was uh, East Africa's conga, which is actually Dr. Ryan's area of expertise. Um, and it fascinated me because conga is a piece of common wear, it's essentially a, a wrapper um, with a main image in the middle and like a message in Swahili written um, that is worn by women and it's an, an inexpensive piece of attire and it fascinated me because although it's inexpensive and it, it's seen as just common wear, like looking at it aesthetically, it's, you know, gorgeous, captivating, so it was pretty cool to elevate that piece of commonware to the artistic appreciation that it deserves. Um, but it fits in relation to the theme, um, because conga, you know, throughout the 20th century, it became this mass produced commodity, a uh, factory printed textile that would be produced in Chinese textile factories and shipped back out to um, the East African markets. or And designers who came and originally came from India and traveled to Africa and lived there would, you know, help in this process. So it was just really cool to see the ways in which Africa was not just a place where things were acted upon it, but it influenced markets, you know, throughout the 20th century. And I think that was an important message to convey through Conga um, because a lot of times, as Dr. Ryan kind of suggested, uh, we see Africa as a place where things are occurring Things are imposed upon it, but Africa has always been an independent agent and an important agent in the global economy. So it was a pretty cool item.
0: And kudos to Christina for taking on something that I am the world authority <laughs> on. I mean, that's pretty that intimidating scary. for any student to sort of come yeah. over to the professor's expertise. So. Awesome, Christina, for taking that on. I want to also add that this comes full circle for me. When I was an undergraduate, I had the opportunity to make uh, an exhibition with my professor. And it was something so transformative in my background that I, now that I'm in the professor's shoes, I wanted to share with my students. And so not that I expect either of you to be professors (laughs) and curate exhibitions. but (laughs) More power to you if you do. Um, I think these hands-on experiences of seeing how things are done behind the scenes and how much labor and effort and time is invested in them, it's even more exciting to then share in such a public venue as an exhibition. A book is great, but the more people who can visually experience these Mm. things and, and have your own personal response to them, the better. And sometimes things will follow you and come full circle worldwide. I'd like to give you an example since we're talking about conga. So I met a 99-year-old co- conga designer in East Africa on my dissertation research, and he was really pivotal. His name is K.G. Pira in connecting all the threads oh, textile <laughs> <laughs> of my dissertation about the, uh, the global commodity that that is the printed cloth called conga. And he was a designer and a wholesaler and a seller of conga, and Um, unfortunately in the course of my research he passed away but his son Mr. UK and his daughter-in-law Zakia, welcomed me back over just after his funeral to reminisce about their father and father-in-law and his career and they charged me with sharing it with the world and so here I am on a podcast uh, sharing his work with the world he has a design up in the gallery and three generations of his family were able Mm -hmm. to attend the exhibition because from amazingly, I met them in East Africa, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and now they live locally in Sanford, right here in Central Florida. So when we talk about global interactions, it is the market, it is political, but it's also the personal. And I think art can unite people uh, across locations, across time, um, with not just the visual splendor, but the personal stories.
1: The Cornell Fine Arts Museum is located on the campus of Rollins College in Winter Park. We offer free admission, as well as free programming for adults and children. And our exhibitions change seasonally throughout the year. To learn more about what's happening at the museum, visit our website at rollins.edu cfam. Yeah, well, just to continue, sort of just highlighting some uh, works from our from our exhibition, so you can you know have more of an incentive to go and see them in person. Uh, I'll talk just a bit about our gendered reality section, which sort of explores both the gendered construction of garments, so with men or women um, primarily weaving or beading or embroidering garments, to also the gendered construction of identity. Once those people then take on those garments on their body, and how that can sort of identify a person as um, within within their gendered. Um, uh, context. And so one one object that is really what's been important to me so far in my, in my academic career is um, a Tunisian marriage waistcoat uh, called a farmla. Um, and this sort of has been the starting point for my honors senior thesis research, um, which has then sort of moved away and gone into Algeria. You know, it's fine. We can <laughs> move across the borders in our research. Um, but this garment is really interesting for its um, for its history and its its importance to women uh, within coastal Tunisian cities, um, so this particular garment would have probably come from Raf, which is a city um, on the coast of Tunisia, um, and it, it's a it's a garment that's on a pink silk ground. So already the color is quite attractive. Just if you walk into the, the gallery, it's the only thing of that particular color in, in the gallery, um, and it's it ha- features embroidery across the borders as well as two small pockets. If you go and look closely, a really fun um, little aspect to it. Uh, This garment would have been uh, embroidered by female embroideresses in Tunisia and then worn by the bride uh, on her wedding day. Um, But even though so much work and care is put into making the garment beautiful, it's actually worn underneath a a tunic, a larger tunic on the the bridal, uh, in the bridal costume. And so all of those designs and the beauty of that garment is particularly for the bride's pleasure on her wedding day. Um, And it's also fun within that gallery, we have a marriage waistcoat from South Africa so that the completely opposite side of Africa, uh, still within the marriage context, but totally different. So whereas we have the tailored vest um, from North Africa, we have this untailored, uh, actually uh, cape that's on a a blanket, uh, on a wool imported blanket that's just then um, beaded uh, by women. And so you can see with across the continent of Africa, these sort of ties between female experience within a marriage context, but still the totally different aesthetic um, or cultural significance of each garment. Um, So again, just thinking about those connections across the continent, but still differences and variances that that create such unique unique individual garments.
0: And I have to say, if you look closely at the marriage waistcoat, you'll see little crescent moons and stars. Being that my maiden name is Moon, I just have to point that out and give you something (laughs) to hunt for in the galleries when you get there. Christina, do you want to take generational conflict and continuities for us? Yeah, Um, this uh, concept theme
2: in the exhibition um, was particularly fascinating to me um, being a woman of color and just kind of getting to see how artistic traditions and dress practices from Africa have spread throughout the diaspora um, and remain prevalent amongst African American communities today. So one notable Item that I just absolutely fell in love with um, is uh, West African kente. So uh, kente cloth is worn predominantly in societies that live in Ghana. Um, And just to give you kind of like a visual uh, description of it, it's super colorful. So typically the colors are yellow, greens, and reds um, in abstract geometric designs throughout the um, textile, but repeated and in a pattern. and kente is fascinating because um, if you uh, see uh, the s- graduation stoles worn by black student unions um, in uh, colleges today, they um, represent the patterns that kente shows. Um, so it's just basically a little a little fragment of kente, and that's not you know by mistake. Kente uh, was worn by the first president of Ghana after Ghana declared their independence from colonial rule. And the motifs of kente amongst the societies that wear them uh, relate to prestige and pride and um, all the things that, you know, wearing a stole on your graduation day, carrying those messages and that history with you, all those messages um, are the ones that you would want to carry. So, yeah, I just, I fell in love with it.
0: And there are two kentes in the gallery. (laughs) And there are... uh, they're pr- showcased on the back wall in the larger of the two galleries, and I, I you would be hard-pressed to miss them.
1: Yeah, I found people are really drawn to the A V kente. Really? All of my, my my friends are saying, I like that that one kente on the side, not that middle one. I'm like, oh, well, you know, the middle ones are more popular in,
0: oh. in the diaspora, especially. Oh, yeah. But so interesting that... That we're finding these trends. That's <laughs> exciting. I always love to hear how people experience them. The Ave a is a, maybe a bit more colorful, but a bit drabber because it's, it's duller cotton, colors. Duller yeah. colors, yeah. yeah. And then the Ashanti one right in the middle back is so bright and vibrant mm-hmm. because it's made of, of silk, a shinier material. That's very cool.
2: And I just want to add that um, this section also is particularly interesting when you look at the continuities between dress traditions because upon our research, The research didn't only consist of scholarly articles about the history of kente and things like that, but I would search on Google and find thousands of Pinterest images of (laughs) marriages, like wearing women wearing uh, kente cloth, but it's tailored and tailored to a conventional style bridal gown. And it was just pretty Mm -hmm. cool to see how these dress traditions have changed and like continued um, and remain prevalent in one of the most popular social media platforms today.
0: I think that leads us to a great point of like, how did we actually select the objects? Because when you come see an exhibition, it's clearly so professionally um, produced, and it's the sort of end story of all this hard work. But how did we actually get there? Um, and let me tell you, it took a while. Yeah, it, it certainly <laughs> took some effort on our part. So in selecting objects for this exhibition there are 71 individual items in this entire exhibition and we needed to have kind of a trifecta of information in order for us to be bowled over and actually select it one it needed to be visually beguiling i would say right it had to have something about it visually that called out to us that drew us in that made us want to look and learn more Two, I think it had to have a dynamic um, and important backstory. Mm -hmm. We had to know a little bit about the history of the culture from whence it came. Uh, It had to be compelling in some way and tell one of these stories that fit into our larger narrative and our sub-themes. And three... We had to agree. There are three <laughs> brains here, and I would say we all had a different aesthetic. We yeah. all had our different favorites, and we had to lobby each other. Um, no arm wrestling, not even thumb wrestling, <laughs> but we, we did have to sort of converse and decide amongst ourselves why it was compelling, and when you have to kind of argue for something that you like and articulate exactly why you think it belongs in a show, it, 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 you get excited yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, in selecting the artworks, the vast majority come from the collection of uh, William D. and William Norma Canales roth who graduated from Rollins College. And she, they have just an enormous collection. And luckily, it was within driving distance. And so we visited their collection, oh, no fewer than ten times, yeah. I would say, to view different objects and um, to, to sort of figure out how this exhibition was going to come together. So maybe Maybe if we can just work together to kind of paint the picture of what it was like yes. um, going through and trying to select these objects. So we'll
1: start, I think, around well, 7 a.m. when all of us probably woke up to 8 a.m. when we all got together to get into my car, Mrs. Morgan speaking, <laughs> <laughs> Then drove yes. an hour and a half down I-4 in whatever ridiculous traffic or awful Central Floridian driving situation traditions. was happening that day <laughs> to finally end up at Norma and Bill's, uh, I guess they call it their warehouse, yes. where they, they store all of their art. Um, and so to, be, to backtrack just a bit, before we our first visit, we had this sort of ideal checklist. Mm-hmm. Very, very ideal. The yeah. things that mm-hmm. if in a perfect world we can include all of these Objects, all of these artworks. We would love to have one of these, one of these, one of these, one of these from all across the continent. Uh, so we got there to Norma's um, Norma's warehouse, and we presented her with this with this document and said, "What, what do you have?" And of course, Thank she you. has like everything. <laughs> um, and so then from there, we had to go and then pull boxes. She would have boxes prepared for us. Or we would have to sometimes physically go and grab the boxes ourselves off of her shelves. Um, and she has a very complex organization system that consists of many books where she's written all the numbers meticulously. And so sometimes it was uh, easy to find boxes. Sometimes it was harder. And then we would go – how long did we stay there usually? Was it like 9.30 to – 9.30 to 1, 1, to 1 was usually was our working
0: period, thirty. 1, so
1: 1, like, it depended. Like sometimes we would hold on a little longer if we they thought the next box would have something else. But yeah. But our tummies, they, they rumbled. We were hungry. We were <laughs> <laughs> and so then we would spend the, the majority of that time unpacking, very meticulously unpacking boxes, removing the tissue paper, rolling things out onto um, the tables she had set out for us, taking pictures, taking notes, listening to Norma tell, tell us about each object. She oftentimes had a personal anecdote or um, just knowledge that she had gathered over the years or books to point us in the direction of. Um, and so from there, we we were able to sort of take notes and then come back later to um, review those, but then pack everything back up, put the boxes away, and then go on our, our nice long lunch with Norma and Ville, um to some of the lovely restaurants in their nearby area. And that's sort of our time of personal bonding with the collectors. I think we bonded with Norma and heard from her very academically, um, as well as personally during our time there. But then when we got to lunch, you know, everybody bonds over food. Food is community. Yes. <laughs>
2: and so those
1: were really, really great times to get to know her and her husband much better. I think
2: a really beautiful aspect of working with Norma was the fact that she not only liked the pieces that she had because of their aesthetics, but she felt she, she did her research on mm-hmm. them. Like she had enough knowledge, both from personal experience and the many readings that she's done to you know provide us with fascinating stories as we, you know, unwrapped each item. Each item had a story. There was no Mm -hmm. unwrapping and looking and then wrapping it again. So it was kind of cool, especially the whole, you know, opening the box and not knowing what's inside. And it just (laughs) felt
0: like a a treasure box. Yeah, it felt like
2: a Christmas every (laughs) (laughs) video. So, yeah.
0: I think the opportunity for Morgan and Christina to handle these objects is bar none so impressive and important and Mm -hmm. rare at the undergraduate level. And for me as a professor, I have the benefit of of maybe longer in this field but for me too, being in front of the objects and handling the objects there's a sort of reverence that it, you know, you PowerPoint and screens just can't convey. Mm -hmm. And so for me To have this group experience um, and Norma's insight and her sort of direction, but also her ability to sort of welcome the directions we wanted to go was exciting. And when we would ask perhaps repeatedly for a type of object or a region that we hadn't seen, she was always so courteous in saying, yes, of course, next time. And where will we go to lunch next time? And mm-hmm. Always insisting that she would pay, but I, I did win some of those. Battles. You did some of them I
1: when, did when win. you asked the waiter
0: beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> and stuck I your learned. card in early. Yeah. I learned. I learned. And so this was, I think, uh, you know, professional development, but also personal development. Mm-hmm. And this exhibition has really been a labor of love for all of us, um, but a labor indeed. So once we had selected um, artworks that so conveyed the the knowledge and information we wanted to the narrative of our exhibition, we actually needed to go and do research on every single individual object to ensure that All of the catalog's information and all of the information you'll see in the galleries is really scholarly and really trustworthy. You might not realize that there are no museum fairies that write all the text on the walls and hang all the objects. No It, It is the product of human labor. And everything associated with this exhibition was either generated by me or Morgan and Christina. And while we didn't feel the need to sign our name to absolutely everything, our fingerprints are there throughout the gallery and throughout the catalog. And so research and writing really took on a life of its own. I told uh, Morgan and Christina that I would own their summers, but I would relinquish them for the academic year. But it didn't work out that it way. didn't quite work out the way we <laughs> hoped. Everything, of course, takes a little longer than you anticipate. So probably by August 1st, after you know, eight, t- 10 weeks of solid working all together, we sort of went our separate ways and said, right, now it's time to write and I wrote a scholarly essay and Morgan Christina each wrote uh, 16 18 17 oh geez yeah. of these extended entries that are now published in the catalog and it takes time to research and to write. And I think that's the sort of unglamorous part of exhibition oh, yeah. building and academic endeavors, but you really got to know your stuff if you're going to feel confident enough to put it out there for the general public. And as a, a teaching process, great for them to endure this, but also great so that now our hard won knowledge can be shared and enjoyed by the, by the community. And you, you know that we have footnotes if you want to see them. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. I think I could speak for both Morgan and I that, the research process was terrifying because mm-hmm. it, it felt like we had to catch up with a whole, you know, field of study. Well, we did have to catch well, up yeah, with a whole field yeah, of study. Yeah, virtually we actually did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, it was super terrifying for me at least, taking only one art history class ever mm-hmm. and talking about, like, for, what, one week on Africa versus right? yeah. the entire world. So, yeah, it was, it was scary, but also it was very cool to see the ways that, you know, uh i've have always observed just like academic studies on africa in general like my own observations of oh yeah they, they're troubled and they don't portray africa nor african societies the way that they should be and it was it was interesting but also disheartening like seeing that play out in the research so some texts you know containing old language describing art from africa as primitive and societies as primitive and exotifying african bodies and things like that so it was disheartening but also it it allowed Morgan and I to strengthen our intellectual muscles I'd say in a Mm. way to not just like read the text and take things as you know for fact we had to critically read the text we had to reinterpret things um you know, the field of African art history and let alone textile history in Africa is so new that also I found mm-hmm. myself so frustrated so many times. And I was like, if I could only find the primary source and only yeah. talk to someone who made this. And it's so cool to see how, you know, these dress traditions that have happened for centuries long have like, what, one or two articles. on right. Yeah, some super of them. niche. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the writing process was terrifying. That's well. what I
1: think Christina and I are a little bit opposite. I love research, oh, but I prefer writing. No, I love research, I like piecing hate things together and <laughs> writing it all out. So, no. we, I remember, I think during the summer, like we were all, re- you were spending so, so much more time on the research. I feel like I started writing yeah. and you were like, you're already writing? And I was yeah. like, well, yeah, I like gather enough information. I feel like it's time to write. But you, you would go off on some like g- good <laughs> little tangents. And sometimes yeah. I, I was like, maybe, maybe little like advanced. come back and try, try to write something and find where you have some gaps. So, oh, it's no. a balance there because, um, you can go down rabbit holes so quickly, yeah. especially when you're interested in a certain object uh, Maybe over others. Or just one is really grabbing your attention. Like you in the Herrera long dress, I feel like you had lots yeah. of like good research on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a balance because, you, of course, there's always more to learn and you feel bad stopping at a certain point and saying, mm-hmm. I have to do with this information what I can and, and write because we have a catalog to publish and we're, we're, right. they're waiting on our
2: um I think that's why it was important so important for us to like spend such a large chunk of the beginning of our collaboration like trying to trace out the exhibition concept the title the themes because you know my little tangents could go (laughs) could go anywhere but at the end of the day I knew this item needs to fit within this concept so this is a narrative that I need to tell yeah
0: exactly so yeah I think you're you feel so much pressure too that now you're in the seat to produce knowledge yeah. and yeah. you are so aware of the troubling aspects that come with the knowledge that's already out there and you're really trying to do put your best foot forward and make your writing intelligible but but deep and, and insightful engaging. and engaging and analytical and at some point right I, I confess I was a little delayed on some of my deadlines <laughs> because that sort of pressure you build it up in your head and then you have to take a step back and say but th- I'm doing a service for our campus our community our listeners our viewers and I know so much. I've acquired so much knowledge. It's time to share yeah. it. And so it's really very empowering once you get over that that hurdle of the pressure you're facing. And- As Morgan alluded to, this exhibition project and catalog could not have just been realized by the three of us plus Norma's amazing collection and generosity. We had professional collaborations in photography, in catalog design, and exhibition installation, and so others were relying on us to meet deadlines and to be... firm in our opinions and directions so that our vision they could best sort of help articulate our vision but then Mm -hmm. you've got to codify what that vision is Mm -hmm. and so uh, Morgan you want to give a a, sort of a rundown of how experiencing a photo shoot oh yeah uh, went for us and when we were sort of drawn into the process and when we probably should have just stood back
1: well yeah there are certain times we should have stood back and certain times we should have paid more attention because I will note that we had a couple objects that were photographed uh backwards or upside down while our attention wasn't on the photography sessions. Right. Um, but other objects that, you know, we they knew best how to lay things out and we didn't Absolutely. need to be there. So this all happened actually in the Cornell Fine Arts Museum. And if you've been in that space, it's not a huge, huge space. But we were able to sort of lay out the objects and have our poor cameraman on a very tall ladder with his <laughs> neck bent against the ceiling <laughs> to get some of the things within frame. Um, but that was a really exciting, I think, experience for, for all of us, because we had taken our little dinky photographs of those with our little <laughs> digital camera. And like, also, when you've been away from the objects for so long, you forget what they really look like. And so we only have our little photographs, which don't really capture the color very well. And then we have a man with this really wonderful camera come in, this great rig with all the lights and things. Um, and the objects just photograph so much better than I even would have imagined. It, it, they look so, so rich. And so and you, you could feel the different textures and things when you look at the photographs in our catalog. Um, and that was really, really important to, to the process because if we have people who can't make it to our exhibition, they can only pick up our catalog, what do we want them to see of these objects they can't see in the round. Um, And so not only was it a great collaboration professionally, it was also us thinking about our our greater population, the greater um, community we're going to be able to reach um, and how we want them to be able to experience all of the
0: objects in, in, in the book. And then the catalog design, right? Oh so gosh, we submitted our <laughs> yeah. our lowly word documents, right, with our text, <laughs> and then these glorious high resolution images of the of the all the objects in the catalog. And then they went off to a designer um, who was working with us through Scala Arts Publisher, the company who published the catalog. And oh, how many emails! So many emails! So many emails. Phone, calls, phone calls! Phone calls! Meetings! Meetings! Yes, the editing and the process of our our vision and his vision and the publisher's vision and CFAM's vision. All of these voices had to be in, in dialogue with one another and at the end, hopefully singing the same tune. And I think we came up with an amazing end product, but that cover. My goodness! Do you remember the conversations over the cover, from the font design yeah. to the cropping of the image mm-hmm. to the image itself? We made up our own from little cover design.
1: design. I, us <laughs> as non graphic design people are like, "What about this cover I mocked up in PowerPoint? What do you think about this?"
0: Yeah, no. no, the designer. <laughs> You're like, no, nope, nope, no, no. We're like, okay, no, no you know best. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I feel
2: like one of the most interesting aspects of this whole like publishing process yeah. that I did not foresee was just the extreme meticulousness was insane. Like having to, you know, settle on how much spacing in between each letter on the cover. Oh gosh. And it made a difference. Was crazy. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, no. And like working, you know, in, on this side of everything Mm -hmm. and doing the research and knowing the overall goal, it's some, it seems like something that's like you know, insignificant, but then Mm -hmm. when you think about you as a general audience member, when you see a catalog or any book for that matter, those little details matter, Mm -hmm. if not consciously, subconsciously. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was one of the weirdest (laughs) parts of the collaboration I did not expect.
0: And so the copy editing of this catalog took the lion's share, I would say, of the next academic year and threw into the second summer, last summer of 2019. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, right, we had moved on and we're having to sort of catch up on the final copy edits of the catalog because, of course, the second summer we devoted to primarily thinking about how the exhibition was going to lay out in the galleries. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't believe how many important decisions have been made on this front so christina what what was your favorite decision to get to make about layout and gallery design Mm
2: -hmm. i'd say my favorite decision about i have two okay (laughs) yeah um probably the first was just kind of figuring out how it works in terms of the sight lines that morgan was mm-hmm. mentioning to me um, mm-hmm. because, again, I shall remind you guys, I am a political science and religious <laughs> studies double major with no art history experience beyond one class. Yeah, you want <laughs> so, to tell them what s- sightlines are in a gallery? Yes, so um, I learned all these nuances about gallery layout, um, that sight lines are just basically – you know, where you want the viewer's eye to go next once they're looking at another uh, artwork. So you, for example, position one artwork diagonally even, Mm. or like right next to, or just kind of anywhere where you think a conversation could be created uh, between those two artworks. So that was pretty cool, um, kind of just getting into the almost like basic... Psychology. I don't want to like, mm-hmm. use that word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a little heavy. Um, but basic psychology of like where people want to look. Like, do they? Do you want to create a conversation in terms of just basic? Oh, this color relates to that color, or do you want to, mm-hmm. you know, create a conversation of? Oh, this is a leather piece. This is a you know colorful piece, but they both have the same narratives. Um, So that was pretty cool. And then the second decision arguably has to be about the columns. Columns! (laughs) Yes, we have columns (laughs) for our, instead of introductory wall, we have introductory columns in the gallery space, uh, four blue columns that are stunning and, Mm. you know, convey that sense of awe and you know, fascination that we wanted to convey through the exhibition.
0: I think my favorite part of the columns is that you get little peaks, Mm -hmm. these little sight lines through to objects behind them, and you're kind of welcome to walk around, right? You want to kind of move in that gallery space, and then the big reveal, the back of the columns are some stunning jewelry pieces um, hung almost like jewelry boxes, acrylic vitrines off of them. So you're rewarded really as you walk through the gallery with discoveries as you go. Morgan, what about you? Oh, what are your gosh. favorite decisions in the gallery design and installation conversations we had?
1: Yeah, I, I liked our, our use of different um display mechanisms. So when Christina and I were doing some independent research on just what have other textile exhibitions done in the past? Because I mean it's different from hanging a painting on a wall or putting a, a sculpture on a platform. It's, you know, are we suspending this from the ceiling are we draping this over a bar is this going to be on a mannequin and so I think our use especially the hanging certain objects from the ceiling which when I saw that we both saw these in sort of exhibition installation pictures from uh, past exhibits we thought that looks cool and so especially the the jiba on the one wall it just seems to be literally levitating floating right in front of that wall I think that's one of the most beautiful um, and sort of mesmerizing images we have in the gallery as well as when you walk in, you see the columns, and to the left of the columns, we have a hanging of three larger textiles that sort of stagger, and so you can uh, see peaks of each other, of uh, each object um, in front of each other, and then it plays with the colors really well. Um, and then, speaking of color, uh, we had lots of discussions about colors <laughs> lots of really crazy colors thrown out different combinations, worrying about things looking too too tropical or too bird-like or too yeah, right. too playing into the uh, stereotypes of Africa or the, the right. jungle aesthetic. And so one color, I remember we were talking about indigo blues. And, um, of course, we love indigo. It's a great color. But there's so much indigo in the exhibition. Mm-hmm. We talked about uh, other elevated blues. I, I mentioned, I think Christina Christine and I were alone, Dr. I wasn't there, mm-hmm. and I said, do you know Yves, Yves Klein Blue? So Yves Klein Blue, which is this, it's like a, he's patented a specific color, <laughs> yeah. which we did not purchase because it's expensive. But it's this really electric <laughs> deep like cobalty blue and I showed Christina's pictures of it online and she said that's yes, great and that's so that's it. that's the color of our columns and I think it's just the such a, a way to um modernize or make, make more contemporary this indigo blue color while still bringing out the blues in a lot of our in a lot of our um artworks and so that I think was a really great choice we made because otherwise the the walls are are charcoal gray and and, um um, lighter gray which are great bases to show the colorful objects off on but it's really that blue just makes makes the exhibition I think
0: it really does it's really the focal point and the centering of the exhibition and then letting all of the other colors in the beadwork and the textiles and the jewelry sing on those light gray and dark gray backgrounds Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things was also devising some of these objects, although they're all worn, sometimes it's hard to visualize how they would be worn. So we have this great Kuba beaded yet belt. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And it has 21 sort of beaded amulets hanging from from it. And it's heavy and grandiose. But how do you display a belt right? We don't have the rest of the king's ensemble to put with it. And so I was thinking, well, I should say I have a three-year-old who's not so tall, and she loves going to the museum. And I was thinking so many things in the museum are are, um, at sort of 60 inches high or to accommodate the average height of a viewer, not thinking about other viewers of other ages or abilities. So I thought, People might mistake this for a really huge necklace if we yeah, hang true. it high. So, how do we get the idea that it's a belt, but mm-hmm. also in, embrace sort of other, um, you know, vertically challenged folks? I'm, I count myself amongst them. I think by all the of way. us are yeah. there. Yeah. 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 We're all like 5'0 in. <laughs> Just saying. But we are mighty. We are. Yeah. And so, we came up with this a large sort of platform that's very, very low to the ground, maybe what 12 18 inches off the ground Um, but because it's so large it it has a presence and it, it it has the scale needed to give you the sense that this is in fact a king's belt but of course my three year old ran right up to it unfortunately put her hands on the vitrine before I could yes I know parent fail and looked down at it and went, "Wow, Mama!" And it was Aww. like, "Done. No, I, I have, I have won this decision." <laughs> she was immediately gravitated towards it, and 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 because of the plexi box, no harm was done. No. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: if I could just add real quickly, I think also a, a really cool part of the gallery design was that, you know, we not only considered younger viewers, but considered how to instill such feelings of excitement and awe that like young kids have within old adults Mm -hmm. um and I thought that was pretty cool so like forcing you know audience members to look down at the belt Mm -hmm. and then forcing them to look up at Mm -hmm. something that's raised high and then like constantly change their perspective you know it kind of makes it feel at least for me when I'm walking through galleries like an adventure like they're, Mm -hmm. they're visually stimulated constantly and I think that was a pretty cool thing yeah
0: I think another thing we tried to do in this exhibition was meet viewers where they are. Now, not everybody can take a Dr. Ryan class on global art, which is replete it's a with shame. map quizzes. It's a shame. <laughs> it's Thank you. I paid them quizzes. to say that. By the way. <laughs> but I do require all my students to take map quizzes um, in order to learn countries of Africa or countries around the world from which we are studying. And so, um, maybe a more user-friendly version of that is that we've included the outline of the continent of Africa and every single country on each of the didactics or the object labels next to the object with the country from whence it comes highlighted so that you can see ah yes Nigeria is in coastal West Africa and this object comes from Nigeria just to meet viewers where they are perhaps to um, push them along in their acquisition of knowledge and comfort level with Africa and so you'll see uh, a lot of maps throughout the exhibition and you'll also have a lot of extended labels or paragraphs that describe the object and and what's behind it? Why did we select it for its historical or cultural context? And for that, I have to thank Morgan and Christina, because yes, they wrote all of them. Mm -hmm. How was it writing these didactics?
1: Uh, It's been, it was really fun. I I think also challenging. Um, I've been working at the museum for past three years. And so that was one of the first sort of skills you require when you work at a museum and you intern, especially as a curatorial intern, is how do you write a wall label. So you do all of this research, you learn all about the artwork, you spend so much time with that artwork, and then somebody might come by and pause for two seconds. And in those two seconds, you wanna convey as much material information as possible without overwhelming them and without using language that isolates them from the object or from the text. Um, and so, especially, uh, specifically at CFA, we try to keep our labels under 150 words. They're really quick to read. Um, But it's challenging then because you have, you know, weeks of research on one object that you then are meant to pare down to, you know, a hundred so words to then convey to people, you know, this is what the essence of this object, this is what you should take away. If you walk away, you have to tell somebody about what you learned, like that's what you've learned. Um, And so I have a lot of fun writing didactics, but I do also find it a really, really challenging thing. And Christina, I don't know how you did, you know, your first time writing them.
2: Oof, that was a lot. It was a lot? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, No, it was was a lot, especially because, you know, it wasn't like the research process Mm -hmm. where we had research on building my knowledge. It was like, no, you're going to write now. Like, Mm -hmm. only write. And it was just so difficult trying to figure out how can I – convey this narrative that I conveyed in 350 plus words mm-hmm. within this small text and not lose the audience, yeah. not be dry and, you know, in, engage thought-provoking thoughts within them. Um, so, yeah, it was super difficult, uh, but, but I definitely enjoyed it. And you don't realize how valuable wall text is mm-hmm. until you go to a museum, which I have a major museum. I'm not going to at them. I'm not going to subtweet them. (laughs) We're just going to say that we did in the summer. And there's no labels. And that completely frustrated me. Mm -hmm. So you don't realize how valuable they are until... They're gone. So yeah. Yeah. if you go to the museum, please read the labels. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I'll say I had the opportunity to write the subtext headings and the intro text, so I'm trying to pull my weight with these with these two <laughs> students who are, who are doing so much of the of the mm-hmm. labor as well. I think it's really cool to be able to share this publicly. It, this is the first exhibition in Central Florida devoted to items of African apparel, and I feel so privileged to be able to share this with our community. And if you get the chance, my goodness, just go and go to the exhibition and see the artworks firsthand. It's the only place you're going to be able to observe the textures and the materials and the techniques and the colors for yourself and make your own conclusions and have your own emotional or um intellectual uh, conclusions driven from these and I hope that you'll learn a little bit about the diversity of ways Africans have dressed and why across the 20th century and learn that they're just as integrated into the global world as we are and have been and hopefully this brings um, out empathy in us and uh, adds to our knowledge um, and also just our amazement at the variety of artistic creations uh, from across the African continent that, again, were once worn on somebody's body. I think that's the best part. Mm-hmm. I mean, those Ashanti royal sandals that are almost yeah. worn oh, yeah. through. I mean, who in Florida hasn't worn through a couple mm-hmm. pairs of sandals in their life? My
1: dad saw those and said, those sandals have seen better
0: days. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, they have. They have, but think about the person yeah. behind them and what he, their men's sandals, yeah. um, lived through and, and, and I guess how they've, they've come down to us. In, here at the Cornell Fine Arts Museum in Winter Park, Florida. So, for you guys, what what was the best part about this exhibition? What was the most fun? The most enjoyable? Uh, tell me. I'm I'm actually very curious. You're actually very. I'm curious. actually very curious.
1: <laughs> um, I, I guess being an art history student, um, we spend so so much time. Looking at images of, of artworks, looking at, at a, in a dark, dimly lit room, the large PowerPoint uh, projected onto the, the, onto the wall and just looking and clicking through images or reading your textbook or reading a reading and just looking at images. And so finally to be able to come in contact, be in such close proximity to the actual artworks that we were going to be researching and going to be writing about was so, so special and particularly them being – textiles in a private collection where we could physically handle all the objects. So just for perspective for anybody who comes to the exhibition, Christina, Dr. Ryan, and I had touched every object <laughs> hanging on the walls, yeah. and we are very sorry you cannot also touch the objects. Please yes. do not touch when you come into the museum. <laughs> um, but that was so, so, so special, I think, as an art history major who lives in Central Florida, doesn't have a ton of access to art, to then be able to visit a collection so, so full of of wonderful objects with great histories that we could then physically handle. So that, and then, of course, meeting and learning from all of you um, as we went through the process, but just the objects are so important. So,
2: Um, I'd say for me, you know, as a woman of color who, with my political science, religious studies background, super interested in social justice and just promoting, you know, racial equality, gender equality, all the equalities. (laughs) um, I will say the most... fascinating, fun aspect of this collaboration was seeing the ways in which museums and art in general, which is often seen as something that's, you know, elevated, haughty for, you know, Mm -hmm. for the upper class, not Mm -hmm. for, you know, the normal everyday person, Um, is interesting to see the ways in which museums and art can be used and wielded as a tool for social justice, as a tool for cultural pride, especially this exhibition riding the wave of the, I believe, 2018 release of the, the yes. Marvel movie Black, Black Panther. Black Panther. Where all of a sudden Afrofuturism and African aesthetics and style was, you know, popularized and it finally captured in pop culture and Africa mm-hmm. was portrayed mm-hmm. as something that wasn't just, you know, impoverished and, you know, things happened to it. And so it was, it's, pretty cool to see the ways in which museum work, um, especially as a non-art history major, mm-hmm. can complement um, those interests. So yeah.
0: I have to say what my most enjoyable part of this is watching these two young women blossom and grow and Aww. take on every single challenge I threw at them. Because I didn't really give you guys a choice. Once you signed on, I was like, right, here are your responsibilities. And we're <laughs> going gonna to get through this together. It really was a true collaboration yes. and. From the title to the sub-themes to the selection of objects, we all had our fingers Mm -hmm. in all of these pies. And it really came together so beautifully. And I think they may have realized that Dr. Ryan doesn't always know everything or have it all (laughs) together, right? I'm a fallible human being too. And so working together in the summers outside the sort of uh, regiment of the academic year, I think we got to know each other personally Mm -hmm. a little bit better. And especially on those hour hour and a half drives to and from this collection really gave us a lot of time to just bond to just talk about stressors and reality and what life is like and um I'm a little older than you guys but not ancient (laughs) yet and so it it was really fun and really gratifying to know that we were all in this together and it was it was a, a joint joint effort and a joint love so that brings me to my next question what was your least enjoyable part of this? What what did you really have to sort of ride yourself to ensure that you met those deadlines or got up in the morning and, and faced our research collaboration for those two summers? I th- that's a really hard <laughs> one.
2: I'd say my least enjoyable though was that I'm a I'm a very go-getter you know Mm -hmm. I I like starting the project and seeing the results boom
0: so it was just so
2: difficult especially in the beginning of the collaboration starting the project not knowing where it's going to go, like no concept, no theme, having to like pull it out as nothing. Mm -hmm. And then waiting a whole another summer in a year Mm -hmm. to move inches ahead. And then also with your family and your friends asking you like, oh, how's your research going? Or even asking you, you know, how does one in art history even do research? And then you (laughs) get a little offended. (laughs) Um, So that was, that was pretty difficult. I think that was the least enjoyable. Just the the pace of things, right. but it all pays off in the end. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's when, when people, out, all my, our friends and family came to the opening, they're like, this is what you've been working on yep. for so long. Oh, okay. I see now. Um, I don't, it's not that it was a bad part, but I just remember the work bleeding into fall semester last yes. year. Ooh. And I, I was so overwhelmed and stressed. Yeah. So yeah, on top of our coursework, Christine and I both have full time classes. Also, do lots of random jobs and things yeah. around campus. <laughs> it's too involved. Um, to then also being have to stretch your brain to research and write for this for this catalog, and then do mm-hmm. peer edits, send it to Dr. Ryan, get edits mm-hmm. back from the publisher. And so that was just tough. Not a bad thing, but just very, very tough time.
2: Absolutely. I printed little images of each like yeah. dinky photos of the artworks yeah. and I put them in the wall of my dorm just to remind myself like hey you have to write today yeah.
0: <laughs> remember Yeah. Uh, to that point I think uh, being on other people's schedules is always difficult oh, right yeah. when you would get edits back and you hadn't budgeted time in your week or your day for those and then they put like you'll have this back to me in a week right and you're like oh right mm. okay I'll just find <laughs> a day out of um, you know the five that I have here to work um, and so they're they're definitely was that bleed? That um, mm-hmm. if I do this in future, I'll be more cognizant of the actual time that these projects mm-hmm. take. But I think we were all unwilling to compromise the quality, mm-hmm. and so yeah. we compromised our time, mm-hmm. um, and we gave more of our time than we maybe could have or should have. But the quality and the end product, I know that we're happy with. Okay. So, so, really. uh, so to kind of bring this to a, a natural conclusion. Um, how has this either impacted your college experience, what have you learned, or what's your main takeaway from this two-and-a-half-year collaboration?
1: Well, Dr. Ryan, not intentionally, but she has roped me into African textiles as an <laughs> academic, you know, pursuit. So I'm currently writing my, my honors thesis um, on an Algerian uh, dress practice women's Algerian um, Uh, waistcoat. So it's similar to the Tunisian garment I was talking about earlier. Um, And so now I'm pursuing, hoping to pursue my PhD in African or Islamic art history. I've applied to PhD and master's programs across the country, and we'll see where I end up. But that's for sure has been a huge impact on just letting me know what I wanted to do, I guess, within art history. I had never even known that clothing or or textiles is an art. Could be part of art history, and so it was exciting to learn from her and to have this experience that then convinced me that this is, I think, what I want to do. So thank you, and oh, it, for sure, it has shaped it like every everything I want to do with my future. It seems so.
2: Yeah, um, this collaboration has just completely changed my insight onto you know how can I pursue something in social justice? How can I be the you know quote proper political science major and study political science? And this collaboration has shown me that. You know, my intersectional interests don't make me any less of a poli sci major, don't make me any less of someone who wants to advocate for other people. If anything, it makes me more. Um, So I look forward to hopefully pursuing a master's of public policy, um, studying either a master's degree or PhD in Africana studies. Um, and, you know, doing research and traditional policy research, but also on the side either contributing to or curating for museums like the latest Smithsonian's uh, National Museum on African American History and Culture, where Mm -hmm. it really is the embodiment of intersectional studies and museums for social justice. So,
0: yeah. I really think that this is what Rollins does best with um, liberal arts and intersectionality and interdisciplinarity and also hands-on, right? If you are just a passive observer, that that is not going to be the most effective, dynamic, um, changeable way to learn. It's really getting your hands wet, diving in, seeing how you can produce new knowledge and how you can change the narrative to suit what your aims and your... Um, your passions are. And I think that's what makes this exhibition so relevant to a contemporary audience that we really are trying to meet people where they are, trying to celebrate the continent of Africa and the diversity of the ways Africans have dressed. And we really are excited to share all of our hard-won knowledge and labors with you in a celebratory fashion. And so I would like to thank the Cornell Fine Arts Museum for their everything. The mighty staff for helping us realize this exhibition, for giving us this opportunity, for trusting us. Uh, You know, a professor and two students really taking the helm of this exhibition. I'd like to thank June Nelson, our presenting sponsor, without whose financial support the exhibition would not be what it was. Mm -hmm to Norma Canellis and William D. Roth, who lent the lion's share of the artworks. And I'd really like to thank you for listening. And we hope that we've whetted your appetite to see the exhibition, African Apparel, Threaded Transformations Across the 20th Century, which will be on view at the Cornell Fine Arts Museum on the campus of Rollins College in Winter Park through May 17th. So any final words, ladies? What would you like to share? Ooh. Oh, nothing else honestly thank you
1: for listening thank you Dr. Ryan for this opportunity and thank you Christina for being a great partner and friend
2: and I second everything you said and the last thing I flip to thank you Morgan oh wow thank you I'm not thanking myself thank you Christina
1: (laughs) yes myself
2: okay and please please come see the exhibition
1: tell your friends and your family drag them to the museum have a day learn about art we love art
0: That's right. And please just enjoy the fruits of our labor. We did it for you and for the public to enjoy and learn from. And we hope to see you in the galleries. Thanks.